Let's enjoy our time together as we look at God's Word. I'm going to be looking at various passages from Genesis, Colossians. Uh, they're in your bulletin in the notes. They're going to be on the screen. Hopefully you have a Bible or I know increasingly people carry their Bibles on their phones or their tablets. Uh, you're free to however God directs you. you. Remember your first job? The first job, it's pretty memorable generally. The first time you go somewhere and get paid to be there. Uh, your first job. My first job was, um, was actually when I was in eighth grade. Uh, I wanted to go on an exchange program to Scotland. Uh, we were living in Bethesda, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C., and I wanted to go on an exchange program that was available for eighth graders in my middle school. And uh, so I went to my parents and said, hey, I want to go on this exchange program to Scotland. And my parents said to me, if you can earn the money, then we'll let you go. Well, I think in the back of their minds, they were thinking, there's no way he's going to make this much money in order to go. So, um, you know, I was a typical eighth grade boy. I read the newspaper every day. And <laughs> I, saw, I saw where I'm trying to make nerdy sound cooler than it really is, but... It's worse than this. If I went on, it's really bad. So anyway, I was reading, I used to read the Washington Post every day. And so uh, I was reading the Washington Post. I saw that they needed paper boys uh, for delivery. So I called the number uh, and um, the manager came to our house to interview me. And basically, now I'm in eighth grade and I was young for an eighth grade. So I think I was 12 years old, maybe 13, 12 or 13. And the manager said, listen, you're about two, three years too young uh, for this job, but I know your family, and as a result, I'm going to give you this, this job. And so uh, at 5.30 every morning, seven days a week, uh, I got up in Bethesda, Maryland, and delivered the Washington Post. Now, <clears throat> for those of you who are familiar with history, um, this was like 1971 to 73, um, this is the Watergate years. This is the Watergate era. And so I delivered the Washington Post every morning during the Watergate era. So yes, I am responsible for the taking down of an American president. Uh, <clears throat> honestly, thanks. I did my part. I earned enough money, by the way, and went to Scotland for a month. Uh, on an exchange program. It was a great experience. But anyway, there are some things I learned about uh, early on in this position. One was hard work. I mean, getting up at 5.30 every morning, really 5.15, I would ride my bike about two miles to these apartments. I, I know it was a different era, but can you imagine letting your 12-year-old ride his bike two miles at 5.30 in the morning to deliver papers anywhere uh, in the world anymore? Uh, we were so cautious and but I learned about hard work, what he had to do every day to deliver the paper. Uh, I learned about commitment because it came every single day. I would do it before I went to church. By the way, on the way home, I'd usually stop at the donut shop, grab a donut, drink some coffee, and read the paper at age 13. <laughs> I know, I was an old man early on. Um, I learned about budgeting and finance. I learned about budgeting and finance because in uh, the, the way they did the papers, the paper boy, the paper delivery person, bought the papers from the post and then collected the money from the people you delivered it from. So you were like a middleman. So I'm buying the papers and 
collecting the money from the people. And so I learned how to interact with people. I learned budgeting finance. I didn't want to order too many papers because I was paying for papers that, you know, were going to end up mine. You understand? I just get to keep the profit uh, between what I got. And I learned it people skills. Uh, may surprise you to know I had some people skills. <laughs> But I learned some people skills. I, I, I had to go to the door every month and answer the door and um, collect, go to the door, knock on the door, collect the money from the people. Back then, you had to go door to door. They didn't mail it to you. You had to go collect every month to get the, the cash. I also learned at Christmas that they gave, give you a calendar. The Washington Post would give you a free calendar to give to people. So I learned that I could go before Christmas, knock on the door, give out the calendar, and they would say, hey, are you here to collect for the paper? I said, no, 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 listen, I'm just here to give you this gift of a, uh, of a calendar and say thank you for, for being a, let me deliver your paper every month. Because I learned, then people felt like they had to give you something. So that they would give you money for this calendar that you were delivering. And then I'd go back afterwards in Christmas and collect the money for the paper. So you just learn different things. Honestly, between that job, which I did for about three years, uh, from like 8th, ninth, 10th grade till my family moved out of Bethesda, uh, which really was honestly a great relief. It was the only way I was going to get out of delivering this paper was to move. Um, you know, I've joked about the Rosses going to Ethiopia, that the reason they moved from Ethiopia was because they were just trying to get away from me. Uh, and anyway, a whole different story. Uh, but all of that to say, I learned different skills in the job and doing this job. And then when I was a senior in high school, I worked for Beacons Moving and Storage in Washington, uh, in Miami, Florida. So if you ever worked for a moving company in the middle of summer, uh, you know what it, it made me realize? I want to go to college. <laughs> I want to go to school. I want to do this the rest of my life, uh, working for Beacons Moving and Storage. Not that there's anything wrong with that, of course, but... Uh, I, jobs introduced me to both the value and commitment of work. Last week and over the coming weeks, we're looking at a series I've entitled This Time Tomorrow, talking about what, what are you going to be doing tomorrow at this hour? Where are you going to be uh, this time tomorrow? And I'm using two books. I, I want to give credit where credit's due. A lot of the ideas and Stuff that I'm giving uh, you is based on these two books, one by Tim Keller called Every Good Endeavor. It's a little older book, Work Matters um, by Tom Nelson. It's a little newer, but both books are great books on, on the value of work and particularly work within the, the framework of Christianity. You see, the truth is this. The vast majority of your life will be spent in two activities. Work and sleep. The vast times will be between those two. Now, I know some people who don't need sleep as much. I, I need a solid eight uh, each night. I mean, I'm like, always have. Uh, I need my rest. But between work eight hours and sleep eight hours, let's say, on average, you're going to spend the vast majority of your life either working or sleeping. Now, I can't help you with sleep very much, but I do believe that uh, we have, at Fullness over the years, tried to help equip you to go to work because the vast minority of your life is going to actually be spent in church. Uh, not that church is a bad thing. Church is wonderful. I love church, 
But the minority of your life is in here. And yet it seems that many churches spend all of their time equipping their people to do what they're going to do for a minority of their lives, which is church work. I want to equip you to do what God has called you to do in all areas of your life. And I want to repeat to you what I hope you already know, and it's this. Work matters. Work matters. What you do, how you do it, how you go about it, it matters. So, what are you going to be doing this time tomorrow? I had one person uh, uh, email me like Monday morning at 10 a.m. and said, it's now this time tomorrow and I wish it was this time yesterday. Uh, <laughs> Wendell Berry I used this quote last week. It's just a great, great quote. It says this. I told you a little of my story, but in his The Art of the Commonplace, he said, the significance and ultimately the quality of the work we do is determined by our understanding of the story in which we're taking part. Every person here has a story. Each person is taking part. And so part of what I want to do is interview people who are in different job arenas and talk to them about what they're going to be doing this time tomorrow. So this morning, Amy Snow is going to come. Yeah, welcome Amy, everyone. I think you're on. Should I change mics, Larry? Hello. Yeah, you're good. I think so. So, Amy, <laughs> share with everyone what you're going to be doing this time tomorrow. Okay. So I work at UAB in international education, and um, specifically English as a second language. And so tomorrow's the first day of the semester, so it's a busy day. Um, we, have about, <laughs> we have about 175 to 200 international students from 15 to 20 countries every semester that we serve. We teach anywhere from 50 to 60 English classes at different levels every semester. So tomorrow I will have a really long line of students coming in and wanting to meet with me and maybe change, want to change their major or their class or their teacher or have some other needs. So I'll have a long, long line of students tomorrow. And then I'll have um, beginning of the semester staff meeting. And I'm teaching, I don't teach every semester, but I'm teaching this semester, so I've got to get ready for my class. So after tomorrow, then you'll hit the regular routine of doing classwork, administration, mm -hmm. meeting with students, is that yes. correct? Yes. And so what are the biggest challenges that you face in your work? I think, I was thinking in terms of just a couple of them are what many people struggle with in your job. I think it's the tyranny of the now versus, you know, casting vision for the future mm -hmm. and planning for the future. And so in my role, that's especially difficult, just understanding that I need to be asking for a vision for our program and pushing it forward you know, while you've got a million things that have to be done right now. I think another is innovation fatigue. So, you know, you're always being asked to try something new and, you know, how's this working? And um, we're, we're even being asked to do online language learning, which is really a struggle. But I think specific to UAB, um, my greatest challenge is just the darkness of higher education mm -hmm. and um, just this pervasive belief that we're smarter than a belief in God. And so it's everywhere. It's, you know almost daily in meetings if I'm with someone in upper administration or a faculty member. It's just there's a, a pretty overt mockery of anyone that would actually believe the Bible is true. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, 
a struggle. And I think lastly, I would say just um, loving my students and my staff without bias. You know, we all have our own buttons. We all have those things that frustrate us or certain personalities that we get along with better. And just, you know, being willing for the Lord to love people through me and my students through me, no matter how annoyed I am uh-huh. with them. So that's a, that's a struggle. <laughs> I understand completely. <laughs> yeah. um, so along with those, what other prayer requests? I have? really would love um, you to pray that God would draw students and faculty to him. Mm-hmm. We have um, a lot of Muslim students. I would say that right now, really our Muslim students are those that are most open to the gospel, and they are crying out um, for hope. Mm-hmm. So I would say, and for opportunities, we have a lot of opportunities to share, but I think with that wisdom mm-hmm. to know, especially for me and my role, when to be quiet mm-hmm. and when to speak out. I would also say favor we need a lot of favor right now in our program um, for me to be able to advocate for our students. So not everybody wants diversity. Um, people are afraid of differences. And so the fact that our program is <laughs> forcing people to have more differences and more diversity on campus can be a struggle. And then I would just say that I personally would not grow weary in doing good. Um, a lot of, you know, like every job, about half of what I do is or the things I don't really care to do, but, um, you know, finding that motivation to understand how it impacts the bigger picture. And yeah. Excellent. Well, we're going to pray for Amy, and uh, we're going to pray for everyone who's involved in education in any form. So if you're involved in education, teaching, you're a homeschool parent, um, education anyway, stand up, and I want to pray for you as we pray for, as we pray for Amy and all of those who are involved in education. Uh, Lord, I thank you for uh, those engaged in the education process. Uh, Lord, whether it be from preschool through college or graduate school, uh, Lord, I just pray your anointing be upon them as they, as they help form and frame truths so that people can receive them. Uh, Lord, I pray, as Amy has talked about that, uh, knowledge, it, it does puff up. And it does at times come against uh, the good news and the simplicity of the, the profound gospel. And so I pray, Lord, for an anointing to be on those in education. I pray especially for those in higher education that, God, you would give them favor, that, God, your, your, your power would so rest upon them that, that those who see them can't help but see the good news of Jesus Christ as they represent you in those places. Lord, I pray... Thanking you especially this morning for those who are engaged with those from other countries, like Amy, who is seeing 100, 200 students come from other places, that they would, uh, all the potential impact that those young lives could make in their countries with the good news if the gospel will permeate their hearts and lives. So God, use this opportunity. Again, I pray for an anointing on our educators. I thank you for them. I speak blessings over them. Give them, give them peace as they, uh, as they work with people and lives. And Lord, that uh, all the challenges and prayer requests that Amy has, has articulated today that go across the board in education and many others, that God, you would touch people, lead them, guide them, Spirit of God, anoint them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Hey, just give it up for those in education and for Amy. Thank you for... 
So here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to close the gap between what happens on Sunday morning and what happens, let's say, on Monday morning in your workplace. Last week, I gave a, a, an overview of this series, and I talked about how we need to reframe work, that your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. We need to redefine work. We need, we need to know that work is not what you get paid to do. Work is what you get to contribute in so many different areas. It's not about compensation. It's about contribution. Uh, we need to reaffirm work, that all work is God's work when it's done in faith. Uh, and we need to restore work to understand that work has eternal ramifications. It's not just about what you're going to do tomorrow. It's your tomorrow is going to impact the future. That uh, there is a destiny and that work is going to be restored. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But today I'm going to go back and I want to dig a little deeper on reframing work. Looking at the biblical groundwork, so to speak, for work. That we need to understand that work is a biblical concept. Because God created work. Uh, work didn't happen after the fall. In other words, work, it wasn't like man was put in the Garden of Eden and just to rest, you know, drink lattes, sit back, uh, get a tan uh, kind of thing, to do nothing. But he was put in the Garden of Eden to work. Work came before the fall. As a matter of fact, God is a working God. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, we, we talk about how God said and spoke and, and life occurred. He created out of nothing, but there's an aspect of we serve a working God. He is creating. He is working. Also in Genesis, I'm just going through Genesis 1 through 3 here, kind of reviewing some things we talked about last week. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. How were we created? We're created in the image of God. If God is a working God, then we who are created in his image are a working people. And the mandate that he gave us was to rule. So he created us, man, in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. He gave a mandate. He said, be fruitful, procreate, have children, replenish the earth, and subdue it, productivity to be productive in our work. So there's procreation and there's productivity that man is given when he is created. Then in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Work and rest 
are part of God's design. By the way, I'm not going to delve too far into this, but there's something in this passage that helps us from falling into ditches on either side. One of the ditches that we can fall into is that all that work is evil. You know, it's just a necessary evil that I have to do. That really the goal of my entire existence is retirement. Hello? I mean, don't we catch that fever? That really what I need to do is I need to work, I need to accumulate, I need to, to live, I need to save, I, I, I need my 401k to keep advancing because the goal of this whole thing is for me to retire. By the way, I don't agree with that. I don't think it's biblical that the goal of your life is retirement. I'm not saying retirement's a bad thing. I'm just saying even when you retire, you, don't, you shouldn't retire. In other words, God has work for you to do that may not be about compensation, but about contribution. And some of you who are over 65 or 70 and have retired, you may have one of the... Your period of contribution for the days ahead may be the greatest golden age of your life. I don't think that God, as Piper said, destined you to go to the seashore, walk along the shore, and pick up seashells. That's not the goal of your existence. He's got something bigger for all of us. So the idea that work is evil is not biblical. Work is good. God created it. But also at the same time, rest is not evil. Rest is not evil. Work, you know, if you're not, if you, some of us get caught up in the other side that, that we just need to work and work and work and work because we, we can't rest. We're addicted to work. And God put this this beautiful, delicate dance in our lives of work and rest. God rested on the seventh day. Do you think God really needed to rest? Oh, man, I'm so tired. You know, it's that idea. God didn't rest because he was tired. God rested as an example to us. And in the fabric of society, he built in humanity this idea that we need to rest. So some of those, some of you who are, there's some people here today who need to actually work harder. You know, your rest has overwhelmed your work. And then there's others of you here today who need to chill, to understand the world could get along without you for the next 24 hours, that uh, your existence isn't critical to the whole fabric of society, that rest would benefit you. You'll be more productive in the six if you'll rest one. That's a whole different thing, but God created work, and he created rest. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? Work it. To work it and take care of it, to nurture it and to protect it. By the way, the creation account in Genesis is unique to other I, don't, I hate to get into this, but there, you know there are other creation accounts. There's Babylonian, there's Assyrian, there's Greek. Everybody has a creation account, it seems like, of society. What's unique about the, the, the Judeo-Christian account of creation is that many times creation comes out of two warring parties. This God is warring against this God. So in the Assyrians, I can't even remember their names, this God, Gilgamesh, or somebody's kills this God, and the earth is formed out of the ashes and remains of the fallen God. 
a lot of warring factions that occur. So uh, the idea that God worked to create is different. Even in the Greek account, there's this golden age of, if you study mythology, there's this golden age when man and gods were created and they, they lived peacefully on the earth collecting seashells by the seashore. That's what they did. They just lived peacefully and then bad things happened and then work came. Only in the Hebrew Bible is God seen as a God who worked and takes joy in his work. He looked at what he had done and he said, this is good. This is good. Now, we all understand that the fall then happens in Genesis and God says to the woman, you're going to have pain in childbirth, procreation, and to the man, thorns and thistles, work is going to be hard, productivity. The things he'd given us to do, procreation, productivity, both are now challenged. In fact, all of creation is affected by man's sin, but in its original form, God creates work. We don't even understand what it is to work without the fall of sin. Um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about, we, we get the opportunity in the days ahead to see what that looks like. Because when there's a new heaven and a new earth, what are we going to be doing on this new earth? It's not collecting seashells by the seashore, by the way, just to kind of, it's not floating on a cloud, singing with a harp and in a choir robe. It's not that. I think we're going to be back to work, but we're going to be back to work in a framework where the fall has been removed. We'll understand what original work has to do with. But the rest of the Bible, really, after Genesis 3, talks about God's redemptive plan for everything. And so what we see when Jesus comes is this. Jesus redeems. What does Jesus redeem? Well, Jesus redeems everything including work. The rest of the Bible is a long march toward redemption and restoration. In Genesis, we see God as a creator and a gardener, so to speak. In the New Testament, we see him in the form of Jesus as a redeemer and a carpenter. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. I mean, doesn't it make sense that if God the Father works, that Jesus, God incarnate, works as well? He, he works. <laughs> what, what's he doing? What kind of work? Well, compare these two paintings, by the way, from uh, the end of the Baroque, beginning of the Classical period, around 1650. Actually, it's in the Baroque. 1650. And uh, here's, here's a painting from a Spanish painter named Murillo. Uh, it's called Christ on the Cross. This is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, it's a typical, what you would see, crucifixion picture of Jesus Christ. Christ as Redeemer. Christ on the cross. This is the work we see that Jesus came to do, was his work on the cross. Um, Ten years prior to the painting of this painting, a French painter 
by the name of De La Tour, uh, painted this painting, this painting called St. Joseph the Carpenter. And you see Joseph on uh, your left, kind of with an auger. And by the way, there's a lot of symbolism in this painting. If you really want to delve into it, the auger is in the form or shape of a cross, um, kind of boring a hole in the wood. And the young Jesus is standing next to him, observing Joseph uh, doing his work. It is a, it's incredible to think about that Jesus' public ministry lasted from the ages of 30 to 33, right? We uh, have kind of sparse accounts of the life of Jesus. We have his birth account, as you know. We have him in the temple at age 12, um, getting in a debate with the religious leaders. But from the age of 12 to the age of 30, we really don't have anything of Jesus until Jesus goes to be baptized of John in the Jordan River. And when he's baptized, God the Father looks down on him and said, this is my son in what? Whom I'm well pleased. Well, what had Jesus done to get the pleasure of God at this point? It's not like he'd gone to the cross already. He hadn't taught anybody. He hadn't done any miracles that we know about. He, he had, he'd been in a carpenter shop working as a carpenter. Now, I, I know I may be stretching it a little far for some people to say, do you think the pleasure of God the Father seeing his son Jesus, who had been a carpenter up until this point, basically, that his pleasure was extended toward the work that Jesus had done in a carpenter shop? Now, I think he was pleased in every aspect of Jesus. But I think that includes the fact that for most of his life, Jesus spent working with his hands. Philip Jensen, in a book called Beginnings, Eden and Beyond, says this, If God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher, king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a carpenter. As a carpenter. Jesus came, I believe, to redeem all things. All things, including work. And I, I think he exemplified it by being a working God incarnate. Romans 8, that famous passage. And I'm extending this to the idea of work. But Paul says this, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God and daughters, sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Why? Did it choose to? No, he says, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. <clears throat> this passage, it's, it's very articulate, but Paul is basically saying, as you know, when man fell, everything fell. And since then, all of creation, everything's been straining to get back to its original position. What's holding it back? Well, God's fruition of the sons and daughters, faith, 
being revealed on the earth. In God's timing, He will restore. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus, because of His work on the cross, shown that it was true by the resurrection, has redeemed, and we're just waiting for that redemption to be fulfilled. God redeems work because God works. What's our response? <clears throat> oh, by the way, this is a great quote by Dorothy Sayers. I'm sorry. The first Adam was cursed with labor and suffering. The redemption of labor and suffering in the triumph of the second Adam, the carpenter nailed to the cross. I love that. The carpenter nailed to the cross. It shows both of his works, earthly, heavenly, redemptive, accomplished there. So what is our response? We work as an act of worship. We are worshiping people when we go to work. 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, I, I know I'm taking this a little bit out of context in that he's talking about our labor for the gospel. But what I'm trying to point out to you is this, that everything you do is a labor for the gospel. Every work you do, wherever you go tomorrow, if you're going to go to class, if you're going to go to business, if you're going to go to sales, if you're going to go to um, cut people's hair, if you're going to be a student, it, it doesn't matter. All your labor is a, is a reflection of your life of worship before God. And don't give up. Stand firm. Your labor is not in vain because God is using you as his representative in the workplace. Here's what I would say to you. If, if you can't do your work as an act of worship, then either you need to change or your work needs to change. I mean, you've got to do what you do in faith. And so either there's something out of line in, in us that needs to be lined up. And then, let me say it again. Gabriel's going to go talk about this in a couple weeks when he preaches on this aspect. But, but all, all work is good work if it's done in faith. If you can do your I mean, obviously there's some jobs we as followers of Jesus Christ should not be engaged in, right? I would say pornography, you know, things like that. We probably, that's not work you want to be, you can make a lot of money, but it's not where you want to go. So what I'm saying, though, is any job that you can do in faith, God can use. It's a labor, but you need to be able to do it in, in, in faith because you need to worship by the way you work. We as Christians are his image bearers. Let me say this in love and sarcasm at the same time. <laughs> I think you, hopefully you can do both. Too, too often, the church is portraying God as this divine ATM machine. That if you just push in the secret code, then he just gives money. He just, you know, distributes it. You know what I mean? Uh, within the Pentecostal church, too often, charismatic church, we, we've, got, we've developed a prosperity doctrine that basically says you really don't have to do anything. You just have to kind of 
Sow your seeds of faith, and then God is obligated to bless you in his divine economy. As if I said God is some grand ATM machine. My friend uh, Jamie Nunnally posted this meme that I've seen before, but I saw it again this week. It just, it fit. Uh, this, it says, more money will come your way this week if you type amen and share. And it's crossed out and said, no, if you worked last week. true, right? At least Paul's, Paul to say in Thessalonians, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Well, why is Paul, doesn't that seem a little harsh? Hey, if you don't work, you don't eat. What about the, the poor? What about those who are He's not talking, he's talking about able people who have chosen to kind of say, look, I'm not going to work because Jesus is going to come back any day. Why should I bother to work? I'm just going to give myself to this activity. And really, honestly, what he's saying, and I don't mean to be overly harsh here, but there was a group who was doing nothing but saying, we're going to do nothing but pray and worship till Jesus comes back. Because he's going to come back any day. And Paul is saying, no, you need to break out of that. You need to work. And if you don't get to work, you're not going to eat. Now, is that harsh? No, I think he's, under, he's giving us a value of God that we're a working people. And if we don't work, we don't get to eat. There's a great book by Andy Crouch. I'm going to recommend some books. Again, it's called Culture Making. And he really, he's... he's he writes in this book about really see your work not as compensation, but the opportunity to influence the culture around you. That you're in the process of remaking the culture as the image bearer of God. It's a, it's a great book, and he talks about the arts, and he talks about um, the workplace, and he talks about all these different areas, these arenas, these spheres, education, that we get to help influence and make culture. That that's God's call. In other words, he's saying God's call is not for you to come out of the world and be so separate. He, God's call is for you to be in the world as his image bearer and sharing with the world who Jesus is in the gospel. Does that mean that in the workplace, in your classroom, in this place or that place, that really what you got to do is you got to hammer the gospel like you got to hit somebody over the head with your you know, six-inch Bible so that they, you know, will receive the gospel. Part of what Andy Crouch is saying, I think Paul is saying, Jesus is saying is, no, in your work, do your work well. Do your work well to the best of your ability. Let the power of God use kingdom principles to do your work. Because whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart. Why? Because you're working for who? I'm working for the man. No, you're not working for that man. You're working for the Lord. You're working for Him, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. By the way, we're going to talk about this in the weeks ahead. There is a direct connect between your work here and your work in heaven. I don't understand the connect exactly, but faithful with little and trusted with much, good and faithful steward, enter your reward. I mean, there's a lot of principles we see. I don't understand all of it, but it, it encourages me 
to say, open my eyes to see that I, I, my work is worship. Man, here's, I, I'm always careful here because I don't want you to get caught up in some legalistic, oh, I got to do this or God's going to get me. I'm going to do this or God's going to... No, no. If you change your perspective and say, I am working under the Lord because I love him so much. I want to do my best because I'm in love with God and he's in love with me. And so I want to do the best that I can in that. That's not legalism. That's a relationship. And there is this connect between the two, but we need to see it in a, in a healthy way. Here's where the church has failed, and I think Dorothy Sayers put it really well in her book, Creed or Chaos. She said, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter, and she doesn't mean Jesus carpenter, she just means, hey, what happened? It was a great quote. Can you help me, Caroline? Um, I'll put the, beep, the thing down in case that was me. Caroline, are you like surfing the web up there? No, I'm just kidding. Um, creator chaos. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. Isn't that right? Here, here's what the church is going to say. Hey, don't get drunk. Don't sin. And then come to church on Sundays. And she says what the church should be telling him is this that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. He should be good at his work. Because, why? Our work is worship. 30 years ago this year, in February of this year, 1989, a United Airlines flight took off from Honolulu going to New Zealand. It was a 747, one of the big ones, big plane. And minutes into the flight, as they were going through around 22 to 23,000 feet, the cargo door of the plane exploded. It was a couple of months, and for those of you who are historically minded, it was not that long after the Pan Am flight blew up over Scotland that was a bomb. So their first response, their first thought was a bomb had gone off, though that was not the case. The pilot uh, was a 59-year-old um, pilot by the name of David Cronin. And uh, the captain, it was his next to the last flight before he retired. Back then, the mandatory retirement age for pilots was age 60. So he's upper 59s. So this is his next to the last flight. Uh, the things that happened over the next 15 minutes are really legendary, so to speak, in the aviation industry. Um, Cronin had to, to, to analyze what had taken place. He had to, to, to start making steps to try and figure out how to get this plane down safely, not knowing really what had happened. His co-pilot left the cockpit. There, their uh, microphone system to the stewardesses and to others were, was blown out when this blew out because when it blew out, it, it blew out many parts of the plane. As a matter of fact, nine people were sucked out of the hole that was created, um, all from business class, which shows you don't fly business class. Uh, uh, were sucked out from business class. 
And nine people lost their lives in an instant. Um, the, two of the four engines on the plane went down. The rudder was damaged. The, the flaps were, were damaged. They had just refueled. So between trying to figure out, because the whole configuration of the plane is now changed, what is the stall speed, for instance, of the plane? So everything that, that he had had all these years and hours of experience flying a plane, he had, to, he had to go not by instruments, but by feel. Many of the things that uh, occurred in the next 15 minutes not only became that of legend, but are, are actually taught in many aviation schools now for what he did to get the plane down. So, for instance, coming in for landing, the, the recommended, I didn't know this, the recommended speed for a plane to land is something like 175 miles an hour. Well, he couldn't get the plane below 200 miles an hour because of the flaps and the damage and the worry that the plane would stall and then crash right before it landed. They had to dump fuel. They had, I mean, it, the list is long that went on. They landed, he landed the plane, and the, the, the flight attendants said it was one of the smoothest landings they had ever experienced. Not only that, he was able to land the plane without running it off the runway. He, he is credited to saving 350 lives. That's how many were on the plane at the time. He, here's the, 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 I could go on and on. I was reading a lot about it this week, uh, kind of from a Time Magazine article and from a book I read. And uh, someone asked him days after, what did you do in the moment that everything occurred? And Cronin, who was a believer, said this, I said a prayer for my passengers and then got back to business. I, I, I don't know if that strikes you like it did me. He said, I prayed for my passengers real quick, and then I got to work. That's what, I, that's what God had called me to, work, to do. I, I found this quote uh, from a book called The Monday Connection by William Deal. It's, it's also quoted in Tim Keller's book. It's a, it's a spirituality of competence, affirmation, and support in the workplace. It's about the workplace. He says this, when United Airlines Flight 811 got into trouble, the greatest gift Captain Cronin had for his passengers was his experience and good judgment. In those moments of peril, it mattered not to the passengers how Captain Cronin related to his co-workers or how he communicated his faith to others. The critical issue was this. Was he competent enough as a pilot to bring that badly damaged plane to safety. He goes on and says this. Through our work, we can touch God in a variety of ways. <coughs> but if the call of the Christian is to participate in God's ongoing creative process, the bedrock of our ministry has to be competency. We must use our talents in as competent a manner as possible. Competency is a basic value. It is not a means to some other end, such as wealth or position, although such results may occur. What is Deal saying? He's saying this. Look, if worship and work are ingrained together, then us being good at our jobs is part of worship because we want to give God worship that is worthy of the sacrifice. Right? We want to give God the best. Now, again, 
I try not to go too far in certain directions because I, I know there are ditches on all sides here where we can get addicted to work, where we can see work as idolatry, where we can see work as legalism. And again, I'm not talking about that, but at some, time, some point we have to wed, so to speak, our theology of God and the greatness of God with the call of God on our lives that in this love relationship with Him, we do the best that we can possibly do in everything that we do. I try to tell our staff all the time, do the best you can with the talents you've got and the time you've got. Because you've got restrictions. That you, you, you can't, if, if you had all the time in the world, if you had all the talent in the world, if you had all the most talented people in the world, then you could do unbelievable things. But you know what? You don't. You don't, get the, you don't get those things. You get a limited amount of time. You get a limited talent. You get limited, talented people. We, we love you. And let me just say that. You're incredibly gifted. But we all have limits. But let's do the best we can with the time we've got and the people we've got. Why? Not for my glory, not for your glory, but for the glory of God. If indeed we are working unto the Lord, we will be his representative every place that we go. People, we want to close the gap between this morning and tomorrow morning. We want to embrace a healthy, healthy theology of work. It's based on the word of God that our God is a working God, that our Jesus has redeemed work, and that we get to go to work tomorrow as an act of worship before him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to work. We thank you for the joy of work. We thank you that in our work, we can praise your name. We thank you that as we work, we can be light in various places. And so, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to work. We thank you, God, that you, you created work, that you've called us to work, that, Jesus, you've redeemed work, and that we get to worship. Lord, may everything we do in your name be an act of worship before you. Lord, I pray an anointing to be upon every person in this place. I pray that everything we put our hands to would prosper as we worship you. Lord, I pray it in a healthy way and in a way that brings you glory. God, we thank you. We bless you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.